You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. Years ago, Newsweek magazine carried the story of the memorial service that was held for Hubert Humphrey, the former vice president of the United States. And hundreds of people from all over the world came together in order to say goodbye to their old friend and colleague. But one person who came was shunned and ignored by virtually everybody there. Nobody would look at him or even speak to him. And that person was former President Richard Nixon. Not long before this moment, Nixon had gone through the shame and the infamy of the Watergate scandal. And he was back in Washington for the first time since his resignation from the presidency. And in this moment, something very surprising happened. Because the then president, Jimmy Carter, who was in the White House at that time, came into that room. And before he was seated, he saw Nixon leaning up against the wall in the corner all by himself. And President Carter made a beeline to Nixon as though he were about to greet a family member. And he stuck out his hand to the former president and he smiled broadly. And to everyone's surprise in that room, the two men embraced each other. And Jimmy Carter, President Jimmy Carter said to Nixon, welcome home, Mr. President. Welcome home. And commenting on that surprising exchange, Newsweek magazine said this, quote, If there was a turning point in Nixon's long ordeal in the wilderness, it was that moment and that gesture of love and compassion. From a very early age, you and I begin to hone the social sensibilities of determining who's in and who's out. Who is included and who is excluded. Who is welcomed and who is unwelcomed. It happens in elementary school among small children. It happens in university among teenage and early 20-something students. And it continues on into adulthood. For all of our culture's talk about inclusivity, we all know the constant pull and impulse of our souls to tag certain peoples as insiders and certain people as outsiders. And once we have given them their designation, we treat people according to the status that we have assigned to them. And they feel it. Oh, they feel it. Maybe some of you have felt that in here before. At some level, we have all felt the joy of being an insider. And we have all felt the pain of being an outsider. The pain of exclusion. The pain of estrangement. In their research, psychologists have even discovered that the pain of exclusion 
registers in our brains at the same level as the pain of a broken bone. But the irony that we witness in God's story is that he is constantly surprising us with the guest list of his kingdom. He is constantly overturning our expectations when it comes to the scope of who is included in his plan. The grace of God is surprising at every turn because we see God including the people that we would exclude and calling his people to imitate him. We see the Lord receiving those we would reject, calling those we would cast off, and embracing those we would expel. But here's the catch. God intends to communicate this surprising grace to the world through his people. Through his people. God can, intends to communicate by the confession of his church, by the makeup of his church, and by the work of his church, the extensive inclusion of his kingdom, the surprising scope of the grace of the gospel. And what this means for us this morning is that we must obey God's call to the church and we must offer God's call to the world. Those are our two points for this morning. We must obey God's call to the church and we must offer God's call to the world. So let's look at our first point as we consider this point of the fact that we must obey God's call to the church. Do you call yourself a Christian? Do you identify as a Christian? Then we must obey God's call to the church. Now, last week, we talked about the watershed moment that took place in the martyrdom of Stephen, Deacon Stephen. And what we see developing out of the martyrdom is something that would not have happened otherwise. Because we mentioned last week that before the martyrdom of Stephen, the church was, they were sharing the gospel. They were seeing fruit in their ministry. But the reality is that they had not yet gotten out of Jerusalem. And Jesus specifically told them that they were going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But it's not until the martyrdom of Stephen, it's not until God sends his sufferings on his people that it actually gets them out of Jerusalem and into the world. What we see is that God scatters his people in order to gather his people, in order to scatter his people, in order to gather his people. Do you see the rhythm? He, sent, he gathers us together as his church. We go out into our various spheres of influence and opportunity. We gather people back into the community. And then we're sent again. That's the end of every worship service. The good word of sending over your life. You are scattered to gather, scattered to gather. This is the rhythm of mission. And this is the rhythm that develops in the rest of the book of Acts. The book of Acts tells us that Christianity was born into a culture that was as resistant and hostile to the claims of the gospel as our culture is. Just as resistant as our culture is. Different nuances, but still the same level of resistance. And yet, 
Christianity spread rapidly and powerfully, changing that culture deeply. And Acts is developing for us how that actually happened. And this text right here before us today shows us an acceleration in that mission. God puts his foot on the gas, okay? And we begin in our passage with Philip. After Stephen is martyred and the church is scattered, Luke then zooms in on one of those scattered believers by the name of Philip. And Philip is scattered to Samaria. And the gospel comes to Samaria through Philip. And as a result, we see in verse 8, there was much joy in that city. But we have to pause to appreciate the surprising grace of this passage. Now, you may be familiar with this. You may not be familiar with this. But the Jews and the Samaritans had beef. They had real conflict with one another. And here was the source of that conflict. Back when Israel went into exile, the practices of the Babylonians is they would take the cream of the crop out of their place. They would take the most talented, the most gifted, the most educated, and they would take them back to their capital, and they would leave the rest of the people in place to work the lands, to do the dirty work, okay? to do the menial work. Well, after exile, there was this, this situation that happened because those who stayed began to morph their faith and began to incorporate different elements from Babylonian expressions of faith. And they began to create what was a sort of rival faith. So when Israel returns from exile and they see what has happened with their countrymen back home. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. What are y'all doing? And they're like, what you mean what we're doing? You coming back in here? You see the conflict? So then this tension, this frustration between the two groups, it continued to escalate to the point that the Samaritans were viewed as sort of like half-breeds. They were viewed as the corruptors of the faith, and they had corrupted the faith. But there was this deep, this centuries-long tension between the two. In other words, what I'm saying to you is that every Jewish believer at this moment would have been like, Samaritans? To them? Not them, Lord. Really? But look at how Luke reports the development. The apostles come down... To, to see this development that happens with the Samaritans. And they lay hands on the people. And God does something out of the ordinary here. He confirms by this delay in the outpouring of the Spirit. He is confirming that the Samaritans have received the very same Spirit as the Jewish believers. And so there was no ground for denying them or suggesting that their experience was some kind of second class or JV experience of God. They're accepted on equal footing and the spirit takes the lead. The spirit initiates by, by this unconventional pattern in order to confirm that the Samaritans are fellow heirs with the Jewish disciples. God knows our tendency to ethnocentricity, which is putting 
your ethnic heritage at the center of your world and judging and interpreting everybody by your lens without ever getting outside of your lens to examine your lens. It's when you assume your lens is normal. Your lens is natural. And everyone else is, a, is an aberration, a departure. They're weird. You're normal. That's ethnocentrism. God knows our tendency to ethnocentrism. He knows our tendency to racial pride, which is absolute folly because the category of race is a mythology, not grounded in anything biological. He knows our tendency to racial pride, which is folly because it's a mythology. And he knows our tendency to culturally exclusionary practices. But right here, y'all, check it out. Right here, we see a hard truth embedded in this text. And here's the hard truth. If you're not working against racial pride, if you're not working against ethnic exclusion, if you're not working against the pool of your own heart to only be in relationships with people who are like you, then you're not digesting what the gospel is about and you're not keeping in step with the spirit. Don't delude yourself. You're not digesting what the gospel is about and you're not keeping in step with the spirit if your life is not moving deeper and deeper into this life of cross-cultural love and mission. If you can't say amen, say ouch. All right? If all that is happening with the Samaritans weren't enough to get the message across to you, the next scene takes you even deeper into the cross-cultural dynamics of the gospel. Take a look at verses 26 to 39, okay? And I just want you to notice the heightened activity of the Holy Spirit because he literally handholds Philip into the next unexpected connection. Do you see it in the text? The Spirit gives specific direction surrounding the call to Philip. Look at it, okay? Verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go to the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Verse 29. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join his chariot. At the end of it, Verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Every bit of, of preaching of Christ that has happened in this book has been spirit-led up to this point. Continuation. Verse 39, and when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Do you see? It's like immediately the Spirit gives Google directions. To cross-cultural engagement. After the mission has been fulfilled in that particular relationship, the Spirit then moves him on to continue that cross-cultural mission. Because he has other people across different lines that he wants Philip to bring the gospel to. Now, many people often get caught up asking all kinds of questions about the gifts of the Spirit. Do miraculous gifts still exist in the church? Can people still do this and that? But listen, I want to encourage you to think about a more fruitful question. Rather than 
spinning your wheels around the gifts of the Spirit, look at the text of Acts for the call of the Spirit. The call of the Spirit to cross the racial, ethnic, socioeconomic, and status barriers in society loaded with the grace of God and Jesus Christ. This is the call of the Spirit. Dorothy Day once said this, and I quote, I really only love God as much as I love the person that I love the least. I'll say that again. I really only love God as much as I love the person that I love the least. Now, I want to ask you, and it's important that you wrestle to try and answer this question. Who do you love the least? Who do you love the least? What type or profile do you love the least? In answering this question, I don't want you to think about feelings or affections. I want you to think about love as it is demonstrated and embodied in Jesus Christ. So let me fill in that question with a few more. Who are you least inclined to befriend? Who are you least likely to serve? Whose pain are you least likely to see and have compassion on? Whose sufferings are you least likely to address? When you get the answer, realize that this is the truest picture of the state of your love for God. And if we're going to really grow into our mission with specificity, y'all, then we have to have some real talk on this point. You only really love God as much as you love the person that you love the least. But let's talk about this. According to DC Health Matters, 55% of Ward 5 residents are black. That is 47,324 of our Ward 5 neighbors. Now, here's a simple question. Do your social circles and friend groups reflect a growing representation of the largest demographic in our mission field? That is a question that you must allow to search you. You must allow this question to search you. This text is challenging us to go much farther in cross-cultural love and mission than any of us ever planned. It doesn't matter how diverse your life has been. The gospel is always calling you farther and deeper in. You don't graduate from this school. You just continue to fail forward. At Grace Mosaic, we're not striving to be a cross-cultural church because it's trendy. We're not striving to be a cross-cultural church because it's an effective growth strategy. It's actually the opposite. We're not striving to be a cross-cultural church because it is politically correct. Cross-cultural is not an elective. It's the core curriculum in the school of Christ. It's discipleship 101. It's not a condiment. It's the entree. It's not a nice hobby if you're into this diversity kind of stuff. It is essential to our life in Christ and our witness in our time and place. It's not irrelevant to the Christian life. It's irreplaceable in the Christian life. 
What if you stop measuring your spiritual maturity by how much theology you know and started gauging your spiritual vitality by your life of cross-cultural love and mission? How do you grade there? I only love God as much as I love the person that I love the least. I want you to understand something. This is not a try harder message. Hear me, y'all. This is not a try harder message. This is a repent and believe the gospel message. This is a, an encouragement message, too. Now, listen, if you find your life moving against the cross-cultural current of the Holy Spirit, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent of your indifference to particular people groups and the erasure of their lives and stories. Do you know that if you don't attend to the diversity of our mission field, it's functional erasure of those people groups? It's like pretending as if they didn't exist. That's erasing them out of the story of this place. That's why so many residents of Ward 5 in all of D.C. are heartbroken, angry, and frustrated by new residents. Because it's not because they don't want new people. It's because they feel erased. They feel unseen. They feel like the city's being remade in someone else's image. They feel like, this is what it's like, someone walking into your home and starting to take your pictures off the wall and putting their pictures up. Taking your furniture, throwing it out the door, and bringing their furniture in. They feel like someone's coming to their home and has redecorated, and they have no say. But God's people live differently in the midst of these things because we're supposed to be a seeing people. Repent of your indifference and the erasure of other people's lives. Repent of choosing comfort and consumption over calling. I don't want anyone being at Mosaic primarily because they enjoy the religious goods and services. I want you here because you believe in the mission. And you want to join us in this labor of love for the good of Northeast D.C. That's what we're out to be. Repent of performative spirituality that keeps you at the surface level of cross-cultural love. Repent of betraying Christ and his ethic by accepting estrangement and enmity. Repent of your cynicism that undermines cross-cultural mission before it can even get started. Are you so cynical that you don't even try? Repent. Repent. Because you got a pocket-sized view of the Holy Spirit and a pocket-sized view of the resurrection power of God Almighty. That's what leads to cynicism. Small views of God. You're looking through the keyhole. He wants you to see the vastness of his glories and his manifold excellencies. Repent and believe. Believe in the power of prayer and the Father's willingness to answer our prayers for healing broken relationships. Believe in the redemptive and reconciling power of Christ to create unity and diversity. Believe in the power of the Spirit to transform our community into a beautiful expression of doxological diversity. Doxological diversity, which means that our end goal in pursuing the, the beautiful community, as Reverend Dr. Erwin Ince has told us, the end goal is the glory of God. 
And it is the glory of God that actually nourishes this life of love because he has called us to it and he designed us for it. And then, friends, bear fruit in keeping with repentance by engaging some new practices, not just thinking the right thoughts about cross-cultural. I'm here to tell you that I have encountered many people who on the political spectrum are more left to center, and they think that because they agree with certain ideas that they are actually living into the cross-cultural life. And they're not. They are creating as much estrangement as anybody else. But they assuage their own conscience by saying, no, no, I believe in these ideas. It's not about believing the ideas. It's about living the life. Getting it into your body, into your practices. Take up some new practices. Practice hospitality by opening your home and your heart to neighbors who are different by inviting them into the life of our community. At whatever level they're comfortable coming in. Open up your heart. Open up your home. Open your table. Invite them into the life of our community. Practice hospitality. Practice compassion through curious, careful, and prayerful listening to people who have a different culture or life experience. I'm convinced that one of the things that keeps us going like this is that we don't know how to listen. We don't know how to hear and sympathize and say, man, if I were in that situation, I'd probably feel much the same. Let me partner with them in removing those things that are undermining their flourishing rather than this us versus them zero-sum game kind of thing. Practice compassion. Practice humility when you encounter perspectives that are different from your own. If all the things that the Bible says about you are true, you should not be so convinced that you are right on a lot of social and political issues, okay? If everything the Bible says about, you know, the Bible says that the fall didn't just affect the world in general. The fall didn't just affect your body. The fall affects your mind and your rationality so that you don't even put things together in a rational way a lot of times. You might think you're a clear thinker, but only to be deceived. The fall affects your way of thinking. Humility says, hmm, I've never thought about that angle before. Let me process through that a bit in community. Practice humility. Practice humility by listening, considering alternative perspectives on issues of the day. But most importantly, practice humility by valuing the living image bearers in front of you and around you who are having different experiences and offering different commentary on the things that they're suffering. And listening well enough to say, I'm going to play a role in addressing that. And listen, we're not always going to agree around the means with our neighbors. But a church that is putting their hand to the plow according to their own Christian framework and doing good in their place is an undeniably good presence in the neighborhood. If you find yourself moving with this current of the Holy Spirit, I want you to know that God is at work in your life and you should be encouraged and keep pressing on. Okay? Be encouraged. Yes, it's difficult work. 
It's often thankless work. It's work that brings you to the end of yourself. But it's worth it. Grace Mosaic, this is God's call to the church. This is why cross-cultural love and mission are so important and central to the ministry and mission of Grace Mosaic. We want to get people in the boat, but we want everybody rowing in the same direction, okay? So if you're getting in this boat, we go into cross-cultural land, okay? Because <laughs> that's what the land of promise will be if you look at the end of the story. Let's be hearers and doers of the word. But finally, let me hit this final point. We must offer God's call to the world. Who is this Ethiopian eunuch? Who is this man? What do we learn about him from the text? A few things. First, he is an African. He is Ethiopian, which is south of Egypt. And it was known in the Old Testament as the land of Cush. It's in what we know today as Sudan. And it was in the Nubian kingdom at that time. As an Ethiopian, the eunuch is black, and so the gospel is extending and expanding to a new ethnic group. This man, not only is he a black African, but this man is very successful. He is the chief financial officer of Ethiopia. He can read at a time where the vast majority of people were illiterate. This, this man was intellectually sophisticated. This man is wealthy. How do I know that? Because first of all, he owns an Isaiah scroll. And people wasn't ordering books on Amazon. They weren't ordering scrolls on Amazon. The only way you had a scroll is if you were a baller and a shot caller, all right? And the other way we know this man was wealthy is because he had a chariot. Now, look, back in the day, this was the stretch limo of that time. And so this man is wealthy. He's educated. He has been accomplished. He's the CFO of, of Ethiopia, of Cush. And he's still not happy. He's still not happy. He is spiritually empty, and now he is feeling the pain of rejection. Why do I say that? you got to put the story together, okay? Eunuchs, we are told in the Old Testament, cannot enter the assembly of the Lord. I want you to think about it. This man lives, you know, Ethiopia was understood in, in first century Jewish documents as the ends of the earth. You know that? So this man is from the ends of the earth, thousands of miles away. And he makes this journey in a chariot, bumpy, long ride. He has to take months off of work. And he journeys for months. He has an Isaiah scroll, but he don't got no video games, no Nintendo Switch. It's a long ride. And he finally gets to Israel. And he's ready, somehow, some way, he's drawn to the God of Israel, he makes this thousands of miles journey only to show up at the temple and to discover that he could not gain access, that his kind weren't allowed in. He's turned away. 
Now he's on his way home from going to Jerusalem where he came to worship at the temple only to be rejected and he's in spiritual search mode. He made it to the top of his vocation and it wasn't enough. He has made this long journey, he gets to the temple and he learns that he's not allowed in. Imagine how he felt. And now we pick up the story of this man as he's making the long return trip back to Ethiopia and he's reading in the Isaiah scroll. And the part that he's reading is in the chapters, the 50s of Isaiah. He's in the chapters 50 and following. And here's why that's important. In these chapters, Isaiah wasn't just looking through the long range prophetic telescope, as it were. He is meditating deeply on the fate of Israel in exile and on the promises and purposes of God, which remain constant despite Israel's failure to be the light to the nations or even to walk in that light themselves. And gradually, a picture starts to take shape in his mind of a servant, one who would complete Israel's task, one who would come to where Israel was and do for Israel and for the whole world what they could not do for themselves, to bear in his own body the shame and the reproach of the nations and of God's people, to die under the weight of the world's wickedness. And it was only in this way that the promises of God could be fulfilled. He's talking about the way in which Israel's long night of exile would give way to a new day and blessing, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. And in that text, in the 50s of Isaiah, we don't just learn about the suffering servant. Isaiah eventually gets to blessing that comes to outsiders, foreigners, and even eunuchs. Isaiah 56 says this, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name and it shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and hold fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. And make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. That should be the note that hangs over every gospel church in the world. A house of prayer for all peoples. Not just some. Not just for the well-mannered. Not just for the well-behaved. Not just for those who know theology. Not for those who have their lives figured out. Not for those who have their ethic completely together. It's for all peoples because all peoples need to come and hear about the transforming grace of the Lord in the gospel. 
Now, check it. This man read this text, but he can't figure out why he's been turned away from the temple. He couldn't connect the dots on Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 56. But along comes Philip. <laughs> Look at the providence of the Lord. The Spirit says to Philip, go run along that chariot. Now, imagine this. The Ethiopian eunuch is a baller and a shot caller, riding in his stretch limo. And all of a sudden, someone comes riding up, running up beside him. He's like, do you understand what you're reading? Now, I don't know about you. Someone ran up to my truck and be like, hey, what you doing? Right? Like, you expecting to get jacked. But think about the Ethiopian eunuch. He looks at Philip and is like, yeah, why don't you come up here and interpret this for me? Right? The humility, the openness, the welcome. You see how hungry he is to know. He needs hope in this moment. He needs direction because all of the other good things in his life are not doing for him what Jesus can do for him. And that ache persists until Philip connects the dots between Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 56. Because it is through the work of the servant of the Lord that the eunuch can be included, can be brought in, can be a part of the family of God, can be a numbered among the redeemed. This is the good news he unpacks for him. The eunuch humbly opens himself up to interpretive community. Do you see that? And he lays himself bare for examination. And then Philip connects the dots and we see God's call to the world. Fam, the, the beauty of the gospel story, the story that converted the, the eunuch was this. One day God sent his son into this fractured and divided world. He came to a people living under the shame and infamy of sin and rebellion against the great king. But in his surprising grace, Jesus made a beeline to us. He threw open his arms and he embraced us and said, welcome home, my children. Welcome home. And if there was any turning point in humanity's long ordeal in the wilderness, it was that moment and that gesture of cruciform love and compassion. When he stretched out his arms to be willingly nailed to the cross for our transgressions, when he was bruised for our iniquities, when he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, justice and mercy then kissed so that every nation could be embraced. Christ was despised and rejected by men so that we could be delivered and received by God. He willingly became a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief so that we would be a people of joy, acquainted with eternal gladness. He became as one from whom men hide their faces, so that we could become those to whom God reveals his smile. Like sheep, we all have gone astray. But then came the great shepherd to retrieve and defend us. The Lord laid on him all of our iniquities. So that he could lavish upon us all of his love. At the cross, Jesus was oppressed and we were set free. Jesus was judged and we were acquitted. Jesus was cut off from the land of the living so that we could be called 
into the land of promise. He made his grave with the wicked so that we could make our home with the righteous, beautiful God. It took the servant of the Lord to make us sons and daughters of the living God. Inheritors of all his glorious riches and heirs of his glory and grace. As we mentioned at the very beginning of our service, the kingdom of God is not simply about a goal. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he had the same goal that the people had, but he chose a very different means than they expected. And I want you to know that God has the same goal that we have at Grace Mosaic, seeing us reflect the beauty of unity and diversity. But you must remember that God isn't going to microwave it so. He uses means. If you're waiting back for God to just zap Grace Mosaic into something more beautifully reflective of our demographics in our place, let go of that delusion and say, here I am, send me. Because we are his means of bringing that picture about. It's my prayer that every member of Grace Mosaic will be caught up into this story. And that God's will would be done in Northeast D.C. as it is in heaven. Amen. So let's pray. for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.